Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. How can you know without any uncertainty that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? How can you know that he is the Savior of the world? It's a question about knowledge. Some have thought that religious faith is the opposite of careful thought and reason. That you can either believe or use logic. The great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, in his day, tried to push his fellow Danes, who were stuck in a very cold, dead sort of Christianity, he tried to push them past that by speaking of what we now call a leap of faith. And even though Kierkegaard meant it very reasonably, there are many who have followed in his footsteps who have taken a leap of faith to mean, if you believe in Christ, you have to do it against all the evidence. It's common to find people who think that Christianity is a leaping against all evidence, a sort of blind leaping. And these people may point to passages of Scripture like we find in Romans, where Paul speaks of Abraham who, quote, in hope believed against hope. But my question is, if the Bible intends for you not to use reason and logic, why is the Bible so full of both reason and logic? <laughs> if our faith needed no thought, we could just have our faith in a few propositions that would fit on a gospel tract. And then you could cut away the rest of the Bible like a pie crust. And yet, God has given us the scriptures that are full of things that you must take by faith, but also so full of reasoning, so full of appeals to your mind, not just to your heart. If we want to maintain the idea of a leap of faith, that's fine, but you need to reframe it so that it is a leap in the direction of the evidence. It is a leap that has thought and said that's the way to jump and believes in that direction. What's really helped me is to think of it, the relationship between faith and reasoning as a Christian this way. It is like a bridge that has been built across a river, but not all the way across. It's stopped in its construction partway across. But if you go upon the bridge, it's pointing in the direction of the other shore. So, you can follow your reason. Scripture gives you evidences of a resurrection, eyewitness testimony, your own conscience, the way that we are created. Your body is a sort of ecosystem. These are evidences pointing you to the fact that there is a God. He is the creator. He has made you. You're accountable to him. He has given his son, Jesus Christ, who has resurrected from the dead and changed history. These are evidences leading you across this bridge toward the conclusion that this is true true. But the bridge of reason stops before you get to that conclusion so that no one comes to Christ on the basis of thought alone. You get pointed in the right direction, but then there does come a leap of faith. There does come a point in which you've reasoned all you can reason, and reason can take you no further. And then you have to believe beyond reason. 
But I hope you can see that in this analogy, which I think is accurate, you have been reasoning all along, and even your faith is in the direction of the evidence. You don't go across the bridge and turn around and jump in the other direction. The shore is over there. We have a faith that is more than reason, but we have a reasonable faith. When Scripture at times seems to speak against reason, it's speaking against a human reason. It's really speaking against the hostility we naturally have toward God. It's not against thinking itself, because to read your Bible, you have to think. It's written in words. There's grammar. There's logic. It takes thought. All true knowledge, in fact, is just like this bridge analogy. Some people would say, well, that's unreasonable. If the bridge can't take you all the way across, then I'm not going. I'm not jumping. But actually, all knowledge that you have in this life is of the very same nature. I don't know if you ever thought of that. But for example, how can you prove that your mother is not a spy of a foreign nation? You can give me a lot of evidence of why you don't think that she is. But of course, if she was a spy, she wouldn't tell you, would she? At the end of the day, you follow the evidence, and it's most reasonable that your mother is not a spy of a foreign nation. But you do have to jump. You cannot definitively prove that she's not. And that's true of just about, really, of everything that you believe to be true in the world right now. You always have a gap to jump over. This is Christianity's relationship to reasoning with the mind, and I'm mentioning it today not just because it's interesting, but because that is what Paul is doing in our text. He is making an argument that's carefully reasoned in order in his day to convince the Galatians that what he's saying about his gospel, that it's from heaven and not from man, is true. And in making his appeal to them, the Holy Spirit also is making an appeal to us on the basis of reason, with faith, to believe the things that Paul wrote and to believe that Paul's gospel and our gospel is a gospel from heaven, not made up by people. You remember that Paul has already explained in line with this argument that he's making that he formerly was a persecutor as Saul of Tarsus of the church, persecuting and putting to death Christians. Then he was laid low on the road to Damascus, and he who once persecuted them was changed and proclaimed that gospel. That was one reasonable argument he made for why he didn't make it up, because it overtook his life quite surprisingly in an unexpected way. And then we saw the argument that he's making that he didn't make it up or just get it from the apostles by him saying that he went out to Arabia after his conversion, out to the desert. He didn't go up to Jerusalem. He didn't go see the apostles. They didn't teach him the gospel. He didn't get it from them and twist it around, and that's his gospel. He got it from heaven, and that was another piece of his reasonable argument for why you should believe that to be the case. And now he continues his argument, telling us when he finally did go up to Jerusalem, just what the nature of that visit was. So let's look at that, Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Then, he had gone to Arabia, came back to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem 
to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. What we have in this passage is Paul's alibi. The Judaizers who had come to the Galatian believers after Paul had planted the church and left, seemed to have been making the claim that the reason Paul misunderstood the gospel, the reason that he thought you didn't have to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law and become Jewish in order to be saved, the reason Paul mistakenly thinks it's just all of grace and Gentiles can enjoy it too, is because he has a derivative gospel. When he came to Christ, he went right over to Jerusalem and the apostles taught him. He sat at their feet day after day. They taught him and he picked up snippets of what the gospel is, took it in, switched it around, and that's what he proclaimed to the Galatians. So no wonder he was wrong. And now Paul is using reason to convince the Galatians that that is not true. He has an alibi. They say that he was in Jerusalem at the feet of the apostles getting his gospel. He says, I have an alibi. I was not there. I didn't even go there for three years. And when I finally got there, I was there for 15 days and I saw no more than two apostles and then I left. So what we have here is Paul's very reasonable alibi. He's trying to convince the Galatians that he did not derive his gospel from the apostles but it really came to him through a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. So what we want to do today in this text is to follow Paul's reasoning, because that's what you do when you read Scripture. First, we want to look at his alibi more closely, see what his argument is precisely. And then when we finish that, we want to move over and consider what exactly is it that this alibi proves if it's true, what does it prove to them and what does it prove to us? So let's just begin here with Paul's alibi. See the start of our passage. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Now the timeline in this passage is very carefully crafted. And it's built around the word that's translated in our text, then. He says it three times, twice in our passage, once at the beginning of chapter 2, then, then, then. Verse 18, then after three years. Verse 21, then, and chapter 2 starts, then after 14 years. He's trying to give a very careful, reasonable chronology, a timeline of how things happen because, again, he's trying to contradict what the Judaizers have claimed about him. The timeline that he's given us is he was converted, in, on his way to Damascus, he's in Damascus, he goes off to the desert of Arabia, he returns to Damascus, this takes three years, in our text, then after three years. Three years he's been a Christian proclaiming the gospel, preacher of the gospel, 
Then, at that point, he went up to Jerusalem, and not until that point. And he was only there 15 days, two weeks, that's it. Then, verse 21, he went away, far away north, into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And then we'll see in chapter 2, then he didn't go back to Jerusalem for any substantial stay until 14 more years. So the claim of the Judaizers that he learned everything he knows in Jerusalem from the apostles just is an absurdity to Paul. If only they knew, he'd hardly even been there. He'd hardly even talked to them at any point. Only a handful of days. He can't be some learned student of the apostles. And Paul would know because he studied in Jerusalem at one time, but it was as a Jewish man under Gamaliel, a great teacher, a great rabbi of the Jews. He knows what it is to study under a rabbi and to imbibe the person's teaching. And he says, I tell you, I didn't do that with the apostles. You can't do that in 15 days. It takes years. In fact, when Paul finally did go up to Jerusalem, he doesn't tell you it right here, but you remember they had to lower him out the wall of Damascus in a basket. He was already preaching the gospel. He couldn't get it in Jerusalem because he hadn't even been there yet. He was already preaching the gospel and already people were persecuting him for preaching a gospel that he supposedly got in Jerusalem where he hadn't even been yet. Here is how Luke describes Paul's time in Damascus before he had ever met a single apostle. Never met one. Never saw one. Didn't know what they looked like. Never saw them. And Luke tells us this is what Paul was doing during those three years. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Just came to Christ. It's all fresh. And immediately... He went up to Jerusalem to learn the gospel? No. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And hasn't he come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. That is, as he's presenting the gospel to people. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. If the gospel didn't come to Paul till he went to Jerusalem three years later, what was he preaching in Damascus? <laughs> he was preaching a gospel immediately because he received it from that revelation of Jesus on the road. Boom! Here's the gospel, go preach it. And he did. When Paul finally got to Jerusalem, Luke tells us that Barnabas had to take him by the hand. Everyone was afraid of him. He was a bit of a terrorist at the time. But Barnabas took him by the hand, brought him to Peter and James, those apostles, quote, and declared to them how on the road he'd seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus, before he ever saw them, he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So there is the start of Paul's alibi it's then after three years I went up to Jerusalem. He had been preaching the gospel for three years. And when he went away into Arabia, if you remember, when he came back and they lowered him with the basket out the wall, it was because one of the officials of King Aretas, who was the king of Arabia, was trying to arrest him. So we can safely assume he spent those three years preaching the gospel in Arabia and King Aretas didn't like it. 
three years preaching the gospel that Paul supposedly had learned afterward in Jerusalem. And he says that is unreasonable. What is more, if we continue with his reasoning, he describes his visit when he finally gets to Jerusalem. Look how he describes it. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him a whopping 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now you've probably noticed that Paul is using the term apostles here very loosely. There are times when apostles in the New Testament refers to what we call capital A or big A apostles. Those were the original 11 who were with Jesus in his lifetime. And then Matthias was added to them. That's the 12. Those are the apostles. And Paul was sort of an apostle lately born, a sort of 13th. But other times the Bible will use the term apostles, which just means those who are sent, to refer to any type of leader in the church. And that's the way it's being used here. He makes reference to have seen, having seen Peter, Cephas, when he went to Jerusalem those 15 days. He stayed with Peter. He says, the only other apostle I saw, the only other leader of the church, none of the other 11, 12, none of them, the only other one I saw was Jesus' half-brother named James. Now, this James was Jesus' half-brother according to the flesh. He rose to prominence so that he really had some of the main leadership over the church in Jerusalem eventually, even though Peter was there at first. You're not to confuse him with two Jameses who were part of the big A apostles, James the Greater and James the Less. James the Greater, part of the original 12, the brother of John, sons of thunder. James, the son of Zebedee, that's James the Great, Greater. And then there was another part of the big A apostles, James the Less. We know less about him except that he was the son of Alphaeus. We're not talking about them. He's not talking about them. He specifically says, I'm talking about James, the brother of the Lord, who was one of the main pillars or leaders. That's what he'll see if you just scan down to Galatians 2.9. Paul calls Jesus' half-brother James, together with Peter and John, pillars. That means they are leaders in the church in Jerusalem. So this James was a leader in the church, half-brother of Jesus. Now Paul's alibi is that not only was he in Jerusalem for no more than about two weeks, but he only saw two of the leaders of the church. What is this story of the Judaizers that there I am going to the apostles? Here I am talking to John. Tell me, John, what is the gospel? Here, Peter, tell me, what is the gospel? James the greater, James the less, tell me, what is the gospel? That's the idea from the Judaizers. He learned it all from them over a long period of time. And he says, I was there two weeks. I saw two leaders of the church and then I left. And if you've ever been misunderstood or people have come up with bizarre rumors about your behavior in your past, <laughs> sometimes you just go, well, that's creative. But where did this come from? And certainly that's the way Paul feels. We don't know when Paul went up for those two weeks and stayed with Peter what they talked about. But we know that whatever they talked about, it wasn't much because they had to fit it into 15 days. It was not absorbing the whole gospel. I'm sure Paul had questions for Peter, who knew Jesus in his earthly life. The gospel of Mark, according to church history, tradition, 
was based on Peter's testimony of Jesus' life. So perhaps it was at that time that Paul was learning some of those details. But the gospel itself, all of its essential features, Paul had been preaching for three years before he ever met Peter. And then he was only with him for 15 days. Now, Paul finishes off his alibi here in verses 21 and 22. Then, after 15 days, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Immediately after 15 days in Jerusalem, we're told in the book of Acts that there was another plot to kill Paul. So he must have been doing a really good job preaching the gospel even there in Jerusalem. And so what happens is that the brothers... They decide you're too valuable to lose you right now. And so they ship him off. They send him to Caesarea, which is a city there on the coast of Palestine. So he can get on a boat and go way up to Tarsus. Remember, he's Saul of Tarsus. So he was going back up to his hometown. And Tarsus is in the region of what we call Cilicia. That's why he says he was up in the regions of Cilicia. After 15 days, he sailed away to Cilicia. He mentions Syria here too, and the reason for that, as far as we understand it, is because years later, there Paul was up in Tarsus, sharing the gospel to be sure. Eventually, Barnabas will go up to Antioch, which was a major city in Syria. It's north, but just over to the side from Tarsus. It's a major city. There becomes a flourishing Christian community there, and Barnabas then goes to Tarsus, to look for Paul, he finds him in Tarsus, says, come with me, and takes him over to Antioch. And you remember, it's from Antioch that Paul and Barnabas are first sent off on what we call their first missionary journey. It's the first journey, but Paul had been preaching the gospel a long time. And so that's the point he makes here is, I was in Jerusalem 15 days, and then I was about as far as you can get from Jerusalem in that part of the world. I went far up north to Tarsus, I went on over to Syria, to Antioch. I wasn't even down there in Jerusalem. I wasn't learning from the apostles. I wasn't talking to them. His visit in Jerusalem had been so brief and limited that he says he was, quote, still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. He was not a regular in Jerusalem. Judea is that region that has Jerusalem in it. He was there so briefly. He didn't like move near Jerusalem and then come visit Jerusalem, learn and go. It wasn't some modular study course. It's nothing like this. He's there 15 days and then he's out of there. He was there so briefly that the believers who lived throughout Judea, they didn't know what he looked like. They started hearing rumors about him, but they hadn't seen him. Because again, contrary to the Judaizers, he was not a student of the apostles in Jerusalem. Now, Paul's whole alibi here, it is reasonable, isn't it? You can follow the reason of it. Paul is not simply saying to the Galatians, listen, the Judaizers are wrong. Just take a leap of faith and believe me. <laughs> he actually gives reasons. He makes an argument so that faith is still necessary for the Galatians and for us. But it's not a faith based on nothing. It's a faith in the direction of the evidence that Paul is giving to them. The alibi that Paul gives here could be struck down. It is not in itself the final definitive proof 
You don't read these verses, and if you're very skeptical about the truth of Christianity, you go, well, I can't deny it. It has to be true. It's not that kind of definitive evidence, but notice it is evidence. It is an evidence pointing in a particular direction, but still, at the end of reason, there has to be a leap. There has to be faith, but it's not a blind, meaningless faith. For example, how do we know that Paul, who wrote this, isn't lying? That would blow a hole in his whole argument. Maybe he simply made it up because people lie. Paul's reasoning isn't foolproof. It is reasoning. But Paul knows even that someone might wonder, is he just lying? There are many who consider Christianity itself just born out of lies. It's just made up by a sort of priestly class in order to exert dominance over others or whatever other view there is. And so Paul who can't make you believe anything any more than I or anybody can except God himself, Paul nonetheless gives more evidence, more reason to be believed in what he's claiming in verse 20 by counteracting that thought. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now, anyone can say that. However, if you are a well-known liar... You might not say that. <laughs> People will know that. It does require a certain degree of personal integrity. If you're well known, as he was to the Galatians, it requires a degree of integrity. You have to have some credibility to base a claim like that upon. Paul is willing to stake his reputation. He's telling them, listen, you know me. You know me. I was with you. I helped plant the church. I preached the gospel to you. You know me, and I'm telling you, I'm not lying about this. The Judaizers, they're lying about this. They've made this up out of their own head. But I'm telling you the truth right now, and I'm willing, in some sense, he even gives an oath before God. God himself is my witness that this is true. Now, again, there can be a false oath. But all of this is, again, evidence pointing toward the fact that whoever wrote that there is adamant that I am telling you the truth. It's not someone with a guilty conscience making up stories, saying, oh, you should believe this. This is true, and I testify before God. And this is, again, Paul, who we know from ancient documents, had his head cut off for the things he claimed. All of these things are evidence pointing to the sincerity of the man writing this. Not definitive proof, but evidence in the right direction. As someone has said before, just as a side note, it is interesting that Christians aren't perfect, but there are many, many people across this world who, because they have come to Christ, have experienced a personal change in their life and have become people of upstanding integrity in their interactions with others. There are many who before knowing Christ were adamantly liars who have put that off. They become upstanding people in their communities, Christians whose lives have been changed. There's a level of integrity, not perfection, but a level of integrity there. And so when you have all these Christians making a claim that they've had an experience, like Paul on the way to Damascus, that their lives were changed by Christ, that they're saying, this is true, I'm telling you, it's true, I've experienced, I know it's true. And then you have a large mass of people and those, and maybe this is overcritical, but you can test it. 
those who tend to be the most critical of Christianity, not like, oh, it's okay, but those who are most fervently against it and hate it and think it's a poison, do they tend to be, compared to this set of citizens, do they tend to be those who in the rest of their life are upstanding and honest? Maybe you'll think that's a cheap shot. I'm not saying all skeptics are that way. I'm not making that claim. But it is interesting that those who are most truthful in the other areas of their life are the ones who will say, Jesus is the Son of God. I've experienced the change in my own life, just like Paul. And then over here are the Judaizers and others when you can look at evidences of their life that would suggest they're less than integrity, less than upright. It's not definitive proof against, but it is evidence for Paul's gospel. And that brings us to the end of Paul's alibi here. He's reasoned through why we should believe what he's claiming. And all that remains for us now in the time we have left is to say, if this is true, if the evidence points this way and we take the leap and accept what Paul is claiming, well, what is he claiming? What exactly is it that's proven by Paul's alibi? I would say it's the very same thing that Paul's conversion proved to the saints throughout Judea. Look at that in our text, verses 22 to 24. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they must have believed that because they glorified God because of me. What did those Judean saints who had never seen Paul and couldn't pick him out in a crowd believe to be true about Paul? They believed that his gospel was true and they believed that he, he had a gospel that could save someone as sinful as Paul, Saul of Tarsus. You can see that here. They glorified God because of me. So when they hear that this Saul of Tarsus, who is hunting them down to kill them, when they hear that he now turned and is proclaiming the gospel, they must have believed that this was a work of God. Why? Because they glorified God. They didn't assume it was just some internal experience, his way of handling stress and trauma, and he made a change in his life. They glorified God. The assumption is that God did this. So they believe that Paul now proclaiming the faith is proclaiming a true gospel. He's proclaiming in the text the faith he tried to destroy. So they are putting their stamp to that is the true gospel. That's the same argument Paul's trying to make here. It's true gospel. And the second thing is they are believing that that gospel is so powerful that it could take someone who used to persecute us and in the course of three days, change them into preaching the faith they used to try to destroy. Those are the things Paul's alibi proves. It demonstrated it to the Judean believers, demonstrates it to us as well. Just take a moment and consider that first one. It proves that Paul's gospel was not made up, that it really came from God. They glorified God because of me. His gospel came from God. Do you glorify God because of Paul? The Judean Christians had never met Paul. They'd never seen his face. They couldn't pick him out from a lineup. And so, you know what? That puts them in the exact same position as you. None of you have ever seen the Apostle Paul. 
You're staking your life upon his claims preserved for us in the scriptures. You've never seen him. You've never met him. You don't know what he looks like. There is church tradition about his ugliness. I don't know if that's true or not, but you wouldn't be able to pick him out. Neither could the Judean Christians. So why are they glorifying God? They haven't even talked to the man. Holy hearsay. Eyewitness testimony. They only heard it said. That's you, isn't it? You only heard it said. Right here. You didn't see it. And yet they could glorify God for something they heard said. Because when they heard it, the evidence pointed them this way, and then they believed in keeping with the evidence about Paul and his gospel, and therefore they glorified God for what they believed God had done. It's the same thing that you do as a Christian. You have never seen Paul. You have never seen Jesus. So can I prove to you with scientific precision the claims that Paul made? That his gospel's from heaven. Can I prove it to you in a way you could put under a microscope? No, I cannot. No one can. But you don't demand that precision of anything in history. Nothing. Not one thing do you demand that kind of precision of. How do you know that in 1776, on Christmas night, George Washington led the Continental Army across the Delaware River to surprise the British. You think that's true? You believe that? How do you know? Were you there? You were there? You were with Washington? It was a cold night? You remember that like it was yesterday? 1776, you don't know that. Maybe it was all made up. And there will always be conspiracy theorists who will take any point of history and because you can't prove it definitively, will find cracks in it and say it never happened, whether it's the Holocaust or something else. There will always be that as a minority. But for the most part, all of us here in living our lives, we hear it said and if the evidence is reasonable, then we take a leap of faith and we say it's true. Because you can't know anything from the past, and you can't know anything anywhere else around you that you're not immediately experiencing unless you hear it and believe it on the basis of testimony. And that's what you're doing. That's what the Judean believers did in regard to Paul. That's what you are doing in regard to Paul right now. You've never seen him. You can't recognize him. You are hearing it, and the Holy Spirit works within you to bring you to the end of reason and to leap into belief. We have eyewitness testimony about Jesus and his claims. We have archaeological evidence. When Luke wrote the book of Acts about Paul's life, you can go look up all the archaeological evidence to confirm things. But still, people will demand an evidence that can be put under a microscope in a lab. And I understand that. I like to have certainty. But certainty can become a sin to us, the craving after it. Because most things in life you can't know with that degree of certainty. And some have therefore despaired of knowing anything. But that's unreasonable in itself. Because you live your life, don't you? You don't know that the bank still has your money and can give it to you. But you're living as if you're certain of that. Or you wouldn't have your money there. You don't know your mom's not a spy. She's probably not. And you have to live as if she isn't. Or how are you going to have any human relationships? We don't demand that precision 
in knowing anything else. What we require of any knowledge that we've not directly experienced is that there's a bridge that will at least with evidence and reason take us this far. And then we are willing to leap and say, we'll go the rest of the way. That's how you live your life. You can't do it otherwise. And that's the same thing we have to do with Paul's reasoning here and with all of Scripture. It moves us in the right direction. When it comes to the leap at the end of it, if you don't make that leap, you cannot be saved. If you say, no, I'm going to wait. I think I'm convinced by the gospel. I think the Bible is true. I've seen its evidence in people's lives, but I'm going to wait until I know for sure. I'm going to wait till all the evidence is in, until there's no way that I could be wrong. I'm going to wait just a little bit longer. And the Bible says, you fool! Your life could be required of you tonight. And you're waiting for evidence that God has not promised to give. It's evidence that's even unreasonable for you to demand. And you do not demand it of anything else you believe. If you have come to the end of that bridge and you have here Paul's gospel presented to you that Jesus 2,000 years ago died upon that cross, three days later, later truly resurrected, finished that work on behalf of sinners, and now for all who turn from sin to Christ, they have all their sins cleared, their hearts changed, an eternal inheritance. That's the claim of Paul's gospel, that you can have that this moment by faith. And if you hear that and you read the scripture, you see the evidences in your conscience. You look around at creation. Somebody made this. You see the way justice works in the world. You say the gospel makes sense of that, God's love and God's justice. You see people's lives changed around you and you come to the end of the bridge of reason and you say, I will move forward when they finish building the bridge. God will not finish building the bridge, but he has brought you to this point and all that remains now is your obligation that you take the leap of faith like you do in every other area of life. Only this one, you have the help of the Holy Spirit to do it. I hope that you, in your life, if you don't know Christ, I hope that you're at the end of that bridge or moving along there. I hope you feel the power of the breeze, the mighty rushing wind of the Spirit behind your back, propelling you forward. He is willing to carry you across. If you will look to Christ on the shore and believe, then you will be saved. Or you can leave and you can simply say like the Judaizers, well, it's not true because, and make something up. It's just one big trick. It's probably not true. You can do that if you want to do that. But I can tell you, I know enough of my own heart to tell you that the sins that I was chained to as an unbeliever, I don't think I ever would have broken free from if there had not been a light from heaven, so to speak, on my way to Damascus. I was chained so tightly by particular sins that I had tried to fight and could not. I was a slave to sin, as Jesus said. And then in the course of one year, after looking to Christ, doesn't always happen this way, but it did for me, those sins were gone. I had other sins to deal with, but those sins were gone. And you can explain that away if you want. You can explain anything away. You can explain away the Apollo moon landing if you want to do it, okay? You can explain away whatever evidence you want. But if you're going to be reasonable, this is the way that the evidence point. This is the way that Paul has been arguing. His gospel's from heaven. Here is the evidence. And now may God grant that for every person in here, by his spirit, you do take the leap of faith and be caught in the arms of Christ on the shore. 